The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, are looted Cambodian statues hidden in the world's great museums? Plus, the dark truth behind the art and antiques assembled by the Marcos family in the Philippines as they return to power, and a looped wire masterpiece by Ruth Asawa. I discuss Cambodia's looted heritage with Celia Hatton, Asia-Pacific editor and presenter at the BBC World Service, who's made a documentary for BBC TV and radio exposing the connections between looters, smugglers and allegedly some of the world's most famous encyclopaedic museums. I talk to the Filipino artist Pio Abad, who's made art about Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos and their collections for more than a decade, about Bongbong Marcos's presidential election victory in the Philippines and what that means for the country and the art and antiquities seized by its government government after the Marcoses were deposed in the 1980s. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talk about a sculpture by Ruth Sauer, a highlight of a new exhibition at Modern Art Oxford in the UK with Emma Ridgway, the show's co-curator. Remarkably, it's the first solo exhibition in a European institution dedicated to the Japanese-American artist. Before all that, the art newspaper has a spring sale in which you can get a 50% discount on the complete and digital-only subscriptions. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe, and enter the promo code SPRINGPOD. That's all one word, all in capital letters, SPRINGPOD. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening now, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, a new BBC documentary for TV and radio called Cambodia Returning the Gods was broadcast last week. It tells the story of Khmer heritage, that statues and other objects from the 9th to the 15th centuries, and how for decades temples across Cambodia were looted and their treasures stolen, smuggled and sold abroad. Now the Cambodian government has stepped up its attempts to trace and reclaim them. Celia Hatton is the Asia-Pacific editor and presenter at the BBC World Service, and I went to New Broadcasting House, the BBC's HQ in London, to talk to her about the documentary. Celia, I wanted to begin by asking you just about when you first found out about this story, what was the lead that prompted your interest? Well, in my day job, my regular job, I'm the Asia-Pacific editor for BBC News. So that job entails kind of really keeping across the news agenda for 22 countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, And I was just looking at at different news outlets, as I do, and I came across a relatively small story in the New York Times uh, that mentioned that the Met Museum in New York uh, was reviewing its Khmer collection after being notified by the Cambodian government. They'd been given a list of 45 items of significant interest, according to the Cambodians. Uh, And the Met had agreed to have a good look at its collection. The Cambodians were saying that they thought that these 45 items were probably stolen. And so that caught my attention. And I wanted to write just a very short BBC News radio bulletin piece about it. But to do so, I always need to get to the original source. So I tracked down the uh, legal counsel for the Cambodian Ministry of Culture and wrote to him and just wanted a bit of comment and context. And he was very helpful and, you know, sent me the information I needed for the day, but he wanted to set up a time to, to speak. And of course, I was happy to do that. 
And it really unraveled from there that the man I spoke to that day, uh, Brad Gordon, it turned out that he was the head of the investigations team. Uh, He's also the, the senior legal counsel for the Cambodian Ministry of Culture. He's really one of the people who's really at the center of the Cambodians' efforts to reclaim their lost antiquities. And I must say that he's become the person I speak to almost every day since then, you know, <laughs> then turn into a uh, pitching the story to the BBC and then planning a trip and, and it kind of unraveled from there. And Brad Gordon is central because also he's the connection between the Cambodian government and now lots of museums across the world, basically. And it's it's him who is writing letters to them to say, you know, he's pretty upfront in the documentary, isn't he? He's saying you've got stolen goods and they need to be returned. Mm, yeah, he's quite outspoken. And, and he really believes that what he's doing is he's doing the right thing in order to work on behalf of the Cambodian government. I mean, Brad is a really interesting guy. He's an American lawyer uh, who had sort of longtime connections to Cambodia. He was working in Cambodia and had set up his own uh, law practice in Cambodia and, and was actually contacted by U.S. prosecutors for help when they were investigating a case uh, and starting to really have a good look at uh, what were alleged to be looted antiquities uh, from Cambodia that were in U.S. private collections and museums. And, and so he sort of got in involved that way. I should say he runs a team, though, that really has a lot of expertise in it. We're speaking of multiple archaeologists, one of whom we, we interview at length for our story, Sopiet Mies, and some others who, who we interviewed for, on background. He also has a lot of really young Cambodians on his team, people who are just out of university and, and onwards. But they're really where a lot of the energy lies uh, in, and really the drive to reclaim these antiquities. So it was fascinating to see the team as a whole and to see how they work and really to absorb some of their enthusiasm because they're really the ones who are starting to see the fruits of of their work now, now that the team is starting to rack up some successes. Indeed. So let's focus a bit on what the objects are because on the one hand, they are ancient objects as we will see in many museums and that most of those objects we think of as being from the colonial period and coming into our museums there. This is different, isn't it? Because lots of these are much more recently acquired. Yeah, this is a line that we wrote in the radio documentary, and I think it, it, it reappears in the online story. You know, I said, it's not a colonial crime. These are things that were taken within living memory. And that's really what makes this story different, or the Cambodian's case different from, for example, the Benin bronzes that were taken from what is now Nigeria, or the Elgin marbles, and the, the, the case of the, the Greek government and their efforts to reclaim them. The Cambodian case, they're able to go back and find the looters who can say, yes, I took that object. I can identify that object that's in a museum catalogue. I remember that object and here's exactly where I took it from. So the investigative team is going even further. They're finding the original looters who are now, many of them government witnesses, who are explaining where objects were taken from and identifying them. They're then bringing archaeologists in to try to back up the looter stories. You know, does it make sense that this object was taken from this particular temple? Does does the time and place match? And then on top of that, they have a trove of emails, shipping records. There's a whole paper trail that they're also trying to attach to these objects. Now, they're tracking around 2,000 objects in their database across 250 museums, around 1,000 private collections. So it's a huge 
task. And and the investigators are pretty clear that they're not going to try to prove the case behind every single item. They don't really feel like they have to, but they want to show that they can do this. They do have the ammunition, as it were, to kind of back up their claims. Right. And of course, one of the most interesting things about the film is that by going and seeing the looters, you actually are able to access the lived experiences of the people who were involved in this terrible period in Cambodia's history and explain why the looting took place. It seems to me that's a really interesting angle, that you actually were able to get the first-hand experience. And and these people were living in desperate conditions, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, we spoke with two people who were former looters who are now government witnesses. And we also spoke with one person who's on the investigative team who father and grandfather were looters. So she came at it from another perspective. But all three of those people had the same explanation. They took things because that was the only way to make money at the time. It was the only avenue that offered any kind of employment, really. And, and so they did it because they were desperate. I mean, these were really horrific times in the history of, of modern Cambodia. I mean, 1970 onwards was a time of civil war. Of course, the Khmer Rouge were in power, a really murderous regime, very violent regime was in power in the mid-70s to, to the end of the 70s. But the Khmer Rouge really controlled large parts of the country right up until the the late 90s. And so this was a time of, of strife, of genocide. Around 2 million people died when the Khmer Rouge were in power. And so this was a really difficult period. And so that's what the looters came back to again and again. It was a very simple explanation. You know, as the person on the team who we interviewed, Satya, whose father and grandfather were looters, you know, when we said, if these statues were so important to Cambodian people, why would you want to steal them and sell them on? And she said, well, sometimes stomachs are more important than the statues. You know, we we had to eat. And then, of course, in order for them to get into museum collections, there have to be people between the looters and the museums. What did you find out about that? Well, the team is really interested in two men in particular. Of course, there were other key people who were key dealers around the world. But really, it looks like a lot of the statues that made their way out of Cambodia in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and and even early 2000s really trace back to two men. So one is a former looter named Lion, who has now passed away. The team really made a breakthrough when they were trying to track down former looters. And they kept hearing whispers. They kept trying to sort of speak to elderly people in villages across Cambodia and and to try to uh, see what they could remember. And they kept hearing the name Lion over and over again. And finally, they tracked down Lion. And they showed him, you know, a key book on Khmer art that was written by another key figure, Douglas Latchford. But they showed him this book and they describe how he was just stunned by this book because he was leafing through it and there were a lot of the statues that he remembers buying off of looters and then selling on. He remembers them being spirited away out of Cambodia into Thailand and beyond. And so it must have been a completely bizarre experience for him for, you know, a foreigner, Brad Gordon, an American, and some other Cambodians to show up at his door with this beautiful, glossy coffee table book of images of things that he'd stolen and sold on years before. So Lion was one key figure. Once he started working with the Cambodian authorities, he kind of really opened up the door because he's the one who gave the signal to other former looters, yes, it's okay, you can speak to them. 
The other key figure is the name I just mentioned, Douglas Latchford, and he's a person of, of great interest. First to the U.S. authorities, you know, he was the subject of a U.S. indictment in 2019, 25 pages outlining his alleged crimes from trafficking to selling of smuggled goods. He's a fascinating character. Uh, He passed away as well. He died uh, before he ever went to trial. So his crimes are still alleged crimes because the prosecution never went ahead. But there's astonishing footage in the film, for instance, of, of this sort of muscle man competition that he seems to have presided over whilst also being this antiquities expert in inverted commas. That's right. I mean, he's a really colourful character. I mean, this was a man who was the head of the Thai Bodybuilding Association. The Latchford Classic was held several years in a row in Bangkok, where he spent a lot of his time. Um, And so, yes, we have this incredible footage of him handing out medals to kind of muscly young men in Bangkok, which was, you know, it was very strange to sit in an edit suite and watch, you know, hours (laughs) of of bodybuilding footage just to get that, I must say. It wasn't part of the uh, the story. (laughs) Not part of the plan. Um, But, um, yeah, I I mean, he was also just, you know, a physically, you know, big character, really tall man, really commanding personality. And, you know, as you said, he he kind of lorded over the, the Khmer art scene for a really long time as a, you know, self-declared expert. He released a series of glossy art books, you know, detailing bronzes, Khmer sculpture and Khmer artworks. But it now, you know, as the U.S. authorities first began to determine, and now the Cambodian authorities are very confident now that they have access to more of Douglas Latchford's email archive and more of his shipping records, that things, they really feel that he was at the heart of a lot of the looting that went on and, and was really, you know, the mastermind, as it were, in conjunction with Lion. The two of them worked together to get a lot of Cambodia's most treasured items uh, out of temples in very remote places and into auction houses and beyond. And in the New York Times story that you mentioned was the sort of trigger for all this, it it does name him as potentially the source behind some of those works in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which therefore does connect him directly to the museums as well. Absolutely. And I mean, his name is being floated even more recently. You know, when when my story came out a few weeks ago, the Cambodian Minister of Culture, Purun Sakona, she mentioned Douglas Latchford in her letter to her British counterpart, Nadine Dorries, saying that we believe that Douglas Latchford was connected with some of the items that are in your museums, uh, referring to the British Museum and the V&A. Now, not all the items in those museums pass through Latchford, but there's good evidence that quite a few of them did. And so I think he really has emerged as a key figure in all of this. And before we get on to what the museum is saying, I do also want to find, there was a wonderful bit of footage you found from 1988 on BBC Newsnight. Tell us about that. Oh, that was amazing. So we went to Cambodia in February. And right before I left on the trip, I did something that's quite normal to do. We got in touch with the BBC archive and said, do you have any good footage from Cambodia, Khmer Rouge footage? Or is there anything? I sort of gave them a list of things that we were interested in, different auction houses, and, and of course, the name of Douglas Latchford. And they came back without a mention of Douglas Latchford uh, and just a little bit of Khmer Rouge footage. And I thought, oh, OK, that's fine. And then while we were on the trip, 
we got another email to say, actually, something else has come up. We found a story, and it was a story from Newsnight, which is one of the flagship BBC uh, domestic news programs, saying that, you know, here's a story that we found. Actually, there were two stories, one from 1988 and a second one from 1989, which didn't really make it into our broadcast, but was quite useful for background information. But the 1988 story mentioned two statues in particular that had gone on auction at Sotheby's. And according to the story, it was reported by Wesley Kerr. He reported that the Cambodian royal family and some government in exile figures had tried to stop the sale of two key Khmer statues. And they'd failed. The the auction had gone ahead anyway. And so we looked at those two statues. One was a five-headed Shiva statue. Uh, which is now quite widely believed to be the same. It's quite a distinctive statue. It's quite widely believed now to be in the Met Museum in New York. And the Met told us that they were in dialogue with with the Cambodians about that statue. The other statue is a four-armed Vishnu statue, which took us quite a long time, a lot of back and forth and discussion with the Cambodian investigative team about what happened to the statue. And for a while, they really weren't sure until they had a breakthrough based on looking at our old Newsnight story, because they hadn't known a lot of the details that were present in the Newsnight story. They had never really seen that stuff before. And they were amazed to see those two statues, which were things that were already on their radar, but they just didn't know the background. You see Brad Gordon's eyes light up. <laughs> it's, it's true. He, he, uh, yeah, he had a big smile on his face. <laughs> Actually, it was great watching him watch that story for the first time because I was sort of, he was watching it with headphones on and I could just see the look on his face. You know, his eyes just got bigger and his, he just looked shocked. But this four-armed uh, Vishnu statue, in Douglas Latchford's files, they suddenly came across an old photograph that was labelled with the customer name of one of Douglas Latchford's uh, most frequent customers, a collector who was based in London at the time. And so now the team is really actively involved in trying to trace down that statue, which is great because it was based on something the BBC did quite some time ago and that we brought to their attention. And so that's something that is actively being pursued now. Now, it's interesting that you talked about how the Met said that they were in dialogue with the Cambodian government. That's not the case with the British Museum and the V&A, who are the two British museums that are talked about in your film. So the British Museum is believed to have around 100 Cambodian pieces. None of them are thought to be on display inside the museum itself, which is, you know, really a subject that causes great pain to Cambodian officials because a lot of those items are things that the Cambodians think of as really key priorities for them to get back. Um, So I think it's additional salt in the wound that this stuff isn't even thought to be important enough to be on display. The British Museum, when we wrote to them, they said that they would look carefully at the Cambodians' request, but they were quite clear in that they felt that they had acquired objects in an open and transparent way. And so really, we have to look at this as the start of a conversation, because this was really the first time that the Cambodians have formally reached out to begin this discussion. And so I think that's how the Cambodians look at it as well. The V&A's response was slightly different. They have around 50 items in their collection. Some of them are on display. Their response had a slightly different tone, I would say. And they said that they were willing to to engage in open dialogue with the Cambodians. I don't believe that dialogue has begun yet, but it just seemed to be a little bit different in flavor. I could be wrong. Maybe going forward, both museums will be very, very active participants in conversations with the Cambodians. It'll be interesting to see what happens now.
I think one of the most interesting things about the documentary is that you're able to access the role that these objects have in the daily lives of Cambodian people. And there's a very moving, in fact, testimony from Sop Huip, who's the archaeologist, where she talks about prayer. So tell us a bit more about that, because one of the things I think that museums have done quite effectively is to remove them from that context. And only now, in many ways, are museums attempting to really explain the objects with knowledge that come from local people. And it seems to me that that was a very important thing for you to get across in your film. Absolutely. That was one of the most striking things I learned on the trip. I knew through my reading that these statues are considered to be much more than stone to Cambodians, that they have you know, very strong feelings that the statues contain the souls of ancestors or the, the souls of the gods. And I'd read things like, you know, they're worried that the statues are cold or lonely in foreign collections, especially if they're not kept with any other Khmer statues. So I was aware of this. What I wasn't prepared for were some of the conversations that I had with archaeologists, but with other Cambodians. I had two conversations with archaeologists, though, that really did stick with me. One is with Sopiepa, you mentioned, who's just this incredible woman. She's a very senior archaeologist with the Ministry of Culture. She also has, you know, really been quietly playing quite a key role with the investigative team for years now. And she can speak quite factually about where a statue is from, the style it's in, you know, which king commissioned it, that kind of thing. But when you begin to ask her about the significance of the statue or how she feels, her tone just completely changes. And she did give this quite moving testimony to the idea that these statues really belong back in the temples that they were taken from, that Cambodian people can't pray properly unless they have those statues back, that the temples are empty. And therefore, the use of those temples has been hindered. So she said that she also mentioned how jarring it is to see statues that have been broken into pieces. And for her, it's like seeing a human body that's been hacked off. And, you know, that taught me something because it made me realize how I had become used to seeing statues that had no heads or no arms. That was a normal way in my mind to view a Khmer antiquity. For her, that is not normal. They should be intact. And so she really spoke movingly of that. Another archaeologist we interviewed, one of Sopiep's colleagues, also told a really moving story about how he had been studying in London and he had been allowed to go and see a private collection and how upsetting it was for him that the curator of this private collection had touched the body of a female statue in a way that he didn't feel was very respectful and how upsetting he found that to be and how he went back a few weeks later to see the same collection and how that statue was just gone. And so many people in Cambodia spoke about these statues as feeling like missing relatives, that they had a personal connection with each one of these statues and how upsetting it was that they'd simply been sold off. There were quite a few times where these statues were compared to refugees or trafficked humans. That's really how a lot of Cambodians feel about them. And of course, you had extraordinary access to this place called the Conservatory. That speaks to what you were just talking about, about objects being back where they should be, because lots of them, even in Cambodia, aren't. So tell us about the conservatory. The conservatory is a fascinating place. It's in Siem Reap, where, where Angkor Wat, Cambodia's most famous temple, is located. It's a compound. You have to enter through locked gates. But even once you get inside the first set of gates, there are many, many more locked doorways you have to to get permission to walk through. And in fact, we thought we had permission to go and shoot there. We thought we were the first TV crew 
to get permission to shoot since the 1990s, really. So we thought we had this fantastic access. But even when we got there, guards just ran from every direction. And Brad Gordon, the head of the investigative team, actually had to call the Minister of Culture herself. She had to get on the phone with the guards to give us permission to get into the inner sanctum of this conservatory. Now, the conservatory is where, yes, a lot of statues are kept and they're kept in these very neat rows. So you'll see, you know, a row of heads, decapitated heads, or a row of perfectly preserved statues all in a perfect row. Beautiful carvings. I mean, just a really incredible place with, of course, bars on the windows. And they're there because it's thought that Cambodian temples simply aren't secure enough for those statues to be put back into place. And there's not enough room in the museums to, well, there's only one museum. The National Museum in Phnom Penh just is full, effectively. And so where do these things go? They're stuck in the conservatory, unfortunately, where very, very few people have access. And lastly, I wanted to ask about, you touch on it in the film, about the political situation in Cambodia today, because it's a very difficult situation, right? The human rights abuses, the opposition is banned. It's not as if the political situation is stable there, is it? No, I mean, this is a difficult part of the story, right? Because there is a bit of tension here where... You know, the team that's working to reclaim these statues is part of the government, the Ministry of Culture. They're very clear that that's who they work on on behalf of. But of course, there's this dual desire. Getting the statues back would be a political win for Hun Sen, the leader who's been in power for three decades. It's also a key political time in Cambodia. They're moving towards a general election. Hun Sen is going to be handing power down to his son, we believe. So it's it's an important time for the government to kind of score some gains. And this is an easy gain, really, to boost the morale of, of, frankly, a country that's been through hell the past few years because of COVID. As I said, you know, when we look back at what people say and they believe about these statues, they believe they were taken under duress or, or without their permission. Cambodia has never granted permission for these things to be spirited out of the country. You know, it is important for a lot of Cambodians to get them back, political win or no political win. And so that's really difficult. I I did make a point of asking the Cambodian Minister of Culture when I interviewed her, Purn Sakona. I asked her directly. I said, you know, your country is thought to have a lot of corruption. It's quite high on the on corruption databases. Of course, a lot of human rights uh, problems there. Why should UK authorities cooperate with you? And that's the same for authorities in the US or France or wherever. And, you know, she batted the question away relatively, you know, effectively. She said, you know, name me a country that doesn't have problems with corruption. We have a right to these statues. And that's really what it circles back to. Who has a right to these statues? And I should add that the Cambodians aren't demanding these things come back right away. You know, if you speak with Brad Gordon, he's quite pragmatic, I'd say, in terms of just wanting to enter into discussions with museums. You know, they really would like at least for these statues to be acknowledged as belonging to the Kingdom of Cambodia. But I think they have actually really a lot of imagination in terms of being willing to engage in loan programs. What they'd love to do is to have a traveling exhibition, quite like the, the King Tut exhibition, you know, that brings a lot of revenue back to Egypt. I think they're really open to that idea. And so I don't think it's a case of emptying museums. I think it's a case of really engaging in a discussion about how objects got out of Cambodia and into private collections and into museums and really how to move forward after that. 
Well, Celia, it's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you. We asked the Victoria and Albert Museum and British Museum if they had any updates to the statements in Celia's documentary. The V&A reiterated that they're interested to see any information that sheds new light on the objects in their care and welcome the opportunity to engage in constructive dialogue with the Cambodian government. And the British Museum confirmed that it's now considering correspondence from the Cambodian government carefully and respectfully and will respond in due course. You can read Celia's report on Cambodian antiquities online at bbc.co.uk. A radio documentary called Cambodia Returning the Gods is on the BBC website and the BBC Sounds app under the documentary podcast stream for the World Service and the Crossing Continents podcast stream in the UK. It's also available on other podcast platforms. The television documentary also called Returning the Gods is on iPlayer in the UK and it will be shown again on the BBC World News Channel, though there's no confirmed date as I record this, so check the listings. Coming up, we hear about the return of the Marcos family to power in the Philippines and the art and antique collections they assembled, and we discuss a Ruth Sauer loot wire hanging sculpture. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The former director of the Louvre in Paris, Jean-Luc Martinez, was charged with complicity of gang fraud and laundering on Wednesday night, the latest revelation in the investigation into the alleged traffic of antiquities from the Middle East, according to an official legal source. As Vincent Noss reports, the charges relate to antiquities allegedly smuggled from Egypt and purchased by the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Martinez, who's become France's special ambassador for cooperation on cultural heritage and is supposed to deliver a report to President Emmanuel Macron on restitution to Africa, countries has been placed under judicial control. He was detained and interviewed over three days by the French Office Against Art Trafficking. The head of the Egyptian department of the Louvre, Vincent Rondo, and Olivier Perdu, an Egyptologist, were also held for questioning but were released without charge. Martinez did not want to comment on Thursday when this was recorded, but in previous conversations he denied any wrongdoing in the management of acquisitions for the Louvre Abu Dhabi. The French Culture and Foreign Affairs Ministries say that they can't make any comment on an ongoing investigation, which is led by an independent judge. Also in France, President Macron has appointed Lebanese-born Rima Abdul-Malak as Minister of Culture following his election victory last month. Malak replaces Rosalind Bachelot, who took up the post in July 2020. As Gareth Harris writes, Malak is France's 15th Culture Secretary in 30 years and has been an advisor to President Macron since 2019, helping to roll out measures to assist the sector in dealing with the pandemic. You can hear more about French visual arts policy in the wake of Macron's win in our podcast of the 29th of April. And finally, the disgraced art dealer Inigo Philbrick has been sentenced by a Manhattan federal court to seven years in prison after pleading guilty to an $86 million wire fraud in November. As Kabir Jalla writes, the 34-year-old British-born dealer, who's a US citizen, fled the US in October 2019 after defaulting on a $14 million loan, which began the unravelling of a years-long scheme to defraud a number of his high-net-worth clients and art world acquaintances. Prosecutors said he carried out the scheme by misrepresenting the ownership of a number of post-war and contemporary works. He would sometimes sell more than 100% ownership of the works to multiple individuals and entities without their knowledge. In November, Philbrick was also indicted on identity theft charges. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can get from the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This June, luxury sales return to Christie's New York with two live and five online auctions of jewels, watches, handbags and more. Twelve masterfully created jarred gems meet the Light of Africa diamond, Patek Philippe timepieces from the Kairos Collection Part 3, Birkin bags, 80s vintage burgundies and six rare artefacts from the reign of the six-time NBA champion Michael Jordan. Viewings begin on the 3rd of June at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries. Find out more at christies.com slash luxury. Now, on the 8th of May, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., the son and namesake of the former dictator of the Philippines, won a landslide presidential election victory. It's the culmination of a long, slow return to public life of the Marcos family, following the deposition of Ferdinand Marcos Sr. and his wife Imelda in 1986. The Marcoses became notorious for their lavish lifestyle, realised by siphoning off state funds during their 20 years in power. After Ferdinand was ousted and the family fled to live in exile in Hawaii, a presidential committee on good government was formed to recover the estimated $10 billion that was taken out of the country. But almost immediately after Bonbon's victory, that process appeared to be undermined. A painting by Pablo Picasso, marked for seizure by the Philippines government in 2014, was pictured on the wall of Imelda Marcos's home in San Juan in news footage of her congratulating her son on his victory. The painting may have been a replica. The Filipino-born and London-based artist Pio Abad has, for the last decade, created a number of installations that explore the Marcos period, Abad's family's role in the People Power Revolution of 1986 and the collections of art, jewellery and antiques assembled by Ferdinand Sr. and Imelda. Abad opened an exhibition in Manila in the run-up to the election and I spoke to him this week in London about recent events and what it means for his homeland and his work. Pio, I wanted to begin by talking about the Marcoses. There's been this rather fluffy history of the Marcoses which has come into sort of popular culture because of Imelda's shoes and things like that but the reality of the previous Marcos presidency was far from that wasn't it? Yeah completely I think part of the sort of grand strategy was really to focus on Imelda's kind of Rococo sense of conspicuous consumption but actually you know underneath that fluff was a very very dark history you know Thousands killed, actually, thousands of dissidents who were exiled, and $10 billion that is still largely unaccounted for. So underneath this fluff is a really, really painful history that obviously I have lived through for the last 38 years of my life. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a bit about that personal story? Because your parents were directly involved in the student activism Mm. that eventually led to the fall of the Marcoses. Yeah, my parents actually met as labor organizers in the 70s, and they're Political awakening was really during, you know, the darkest days of the dictatorship in the late 70s and the early 80s. They declared martial law, is that right? Uh, 72 was uh, when martial law was declared. So Ferdinand Marcos uh, won re-election in 69. And when it seemed like, you know, he was falling out of favor from the public, he declared martial law in 1972 and then remained in power until 1986 when he was kicked out of office and they fled, actually fled the Philippines to Honolulu, where Ronald Reagan granted them exile. Um, Not really a terrible exile from what I've seen. But my parents, their story really emerged, you know, as activists who worked really hard to, you know, to take down the dictatorship and to help other people organize and find a voice at a time when voices were being silenced, people were being incarcerated. My parents as well were, 
you know, spent some time in military prison. They were one of the lucky ones because they were actually granted campus arrests. So they spent a year in Ateneo de Manila University, uh, a Jesuit-run university that that kind of gave them refuge in 1980. Right. And in fact, there is a photograph which you've used in your installations of your father standing in the presidential palace with artworks, with objects in the Marcus's collection around him, right? Yeah. So, you know, my parents were part of that first wave of protesters who stormed the palace in February 86. And there is that photo that my mother took of a family friend and my father posing in front of this painting of like a topless chest out Ferdinand Marcos depicted as some kind of, I don't know, Edenic Adam figure. Yeah, that's right. Tell us more about those, because there's been a journey that those paintings have taken in your work, actually, which is very instructive about what we're talking about now. So effectively, you, there were portrayals within the Marcos's palace of them as these Edenic, as you say, mythical figures that were actually sort of part of the whole origin story of the Philippines. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I think the Marcoses were really adept at turning myth into personal profit. And part of the rhetoric of martial law was this, you know, building a quote-unquote new society. And Ferdinand Marcos actually used this phrase, you know, let's make this nation great again, which obviously has been like horrifically recycled recently. And as part of this kind of nation mythologizing, they imagined themselves as the kind of, I don't know, primordial Filipino and Filipina couple. So in Philippine mythology, the myth goes that, you know, the first Filipino man and the first Filipino woman kind of emerged from a bamboo stalk, kind of, you know, nude. Um, And they use this, you know, they commissioned portraits of themselves, they had various statues made. And I think the fact that these depictions were actually not just in the public space, but actually within their private chambers maybe suggests how much they internalize these fictions. That's extraordinary, yeah. And, and before we talk more about their collection and the art that they surrounded themselves with, I just wanted to ask about one particular incident, which I think is really instructive about the myth of the Marcoses and the mm-hmm. reality of the Marcoses. That's around the Manila Film Centre. That was this extraordinary building that was built for a film festival, I believe, and there was a disaster in that building and it collapsed and many workers, it seems, were trapped beneath it and died. That, followed by the swish opening of the film festival, it seems to me to sum up so much of what the Marcoses were actually about. Yeah, I mean, I actually had the chance to visit the site of this film centre a few years ago, and it's still this incredibly eerie place, because the story goes that, you know, Imelda, in her quest to be seen as this sort of patroness of the avant-garde of experimental film of culture in general she wanted to set up this film festival in manila that would rival Cannes. you know the kind of level of delusion is really (laughs) incredible and so she had this big uh, building constructed uh, called the manila film center and it's actually its proportions were patterned after the parthenon so you know subtlety is never their strongest suit but, you know, construction was was not as fast as they'd hoped and the festival was ready to open soon. And so a decision was made to use quick-drying cement to finish construction. But I think throughout all this rushing, the whole floor fell 
kind of essentially burying people in this quick drying cement. And instead of allegedly, I need to be careful now, (laughs) allegedly, instead of taking out all of these construction workers, that they remain there entombed. And the irony is the film festival did open and it opened with Richard Attenborough's Gandhi in the, I forget the year, but it would have been 82 or 83. Yeah, that's an astonishing story. Let's talk more about the collections then. What's just happened in the Philippines is that another Marcos is now in power. The new president is the son of Ferdinand and Imelda. What does this mean for the collections that they built? And can you say something about how those collections were constructed in the first place? Well, you know, that collection, I don't know what to say, but I think it was part of this Marcos need to like accumulate indiscriminately. So the fact that there is this vast collection of artwork, jewelry, you know, objects, furniture is not down to connoisseurship, but actually down to like wanting to, I guess, acquire a civilized facade wholesale. So, you know, Imelda, at some point, she had the largest collection of Regency-era silverware owned by a single human being. Um, That isn't, I guess that isn't British royalty. There was this story of her buying the entire contents of an Upper East Side apartment, you know, from the actual house to, I don't know, to the Staffordshire kind of ceramics of dogs. Uh, You know, she had a vast collection of old master paintings, many of which were purchased from um, the Needler Gallery. Um, You know, so there are these levels of fraudulence that keep on happening, that keep on like intersecting when you talk about the Marcos and the Marcos collection. What happens now is, I guess, pretty easy to speculate because, you know, there is a whole government agency called the Presidential Commission on Good Government, which was set up after the fall of the dictatorship, essentially to trace the ill-gotten wealth and to liquidate it and turn it into funds for agrarian reform or for infrastructure. But it's a presidential commission. So what now happens when a presidential commission, you know, designed to find justice is now run by the very family that it's investigating. I mean, it's not really difficult to imagine what's going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Because the whole thing is that the collection was assembled through funds siphoned from what was effectively the public's money into the private wealth of the Marcoses. Yeah, there was various ways. There was, you know, and, and I think this is when a lot of different international institutions, when you really dig deep, are complicit because there were these, you know, aid granted by the World Bank or the IMF, um, supposedly for national development. But what happened was that all that aid ends up uh, getting transformed into, you know, into personal wealth. There's obviously various kickbacks from various projects. And so, you know, there's a whole network that has enabled the Marcuses to really evade justice. Um, you know, there's this recent discovery uh, by The Guardian about, the, you know, the Credit Suisse leaks where you realize that, you know, up until 2006 or 2008, there was still like ill-gotten wealth associated with the Marcuses that were being stored in the vaults of the Swiss banks. And in terms of the art collection then, as you say, there was a collection of old masters, there's this picture of a Picasso. We're not really sure whether it's the real thing or not, right? Because there seems to be some distinction between the colour of the original and the, and what might be a copy. But even now, 
there are works of art that Imelda Marcos has in the Philippines that are dubious, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there is that Picasso that reemerged a couple of weeks ago, I think, when Bongbong Marcos went to visit his mother. There's a Goya, allegedly, that is still unaccounted for. Allegedly, there's a Francis Bacon that's unaccounted for. There's like this wealth of work because, you know, I think as I was researching on the collection of paintings, even even just, just that, what I was finding were, you know, the secondary works, like the unknown pastoral 18th century <laughs> watercolors or like, I don't know, uh, a Tintoretto that was sold as a Tintoretto in, in 1990, but was returned as a fake to the Philippine government in, I don't know, in the late 90s. Um, so what I was finding really were the duds, which suggests that, you know, that the really the pinnacle of the collection is still unaccounted for and, and probably still in their possession. Um, oh, amazing. And I think the uncertainty about whether that Picasso was real or not is really fascinating because I wouldn't put it past Imelda to actually create replicas of these paintings, print them on canvas and frame them in these gold frames. Like, I think that, you know, like, as I said before, like the kind of lack of connoisseurship has always been there. And it's really just a, it's a show, you know, it's a, it's a spectacle. And as long as it, you know, presents itself as a Picasso on TV, it doesn't matter if it's a real thing or not. Exactly. I'm, I'm really conscious that when I saw your first exhibition in London in 2014, there were pictures of the Edenic figures in that show and it had a particular meaning at that point. Mm-hmm. But ever since Duterte gained power in the Philippines in 2016, that narrative that you were telling then, which was an important narrative about the Marcoses and their history, has shifted massively to bring it into the Philippines present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, like, you know, I mean, looking back to that show, I think that the first time we actually met was at my Royal Academy yeah. degree show where I started doing this work and, you know, Thinking about the political context that I was making the work within then, you know, 2012, we just had Gaddafi being sort of pulled through the streets of Libya. Obama was president. And it seemed like social media was this great thing that will galvanize people and like improve democracy. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the context I was working in when I started this. (laughs) Uh, We laugh because we cry. Um, But, you know, really thinking about how how institutions have been degraded, not just in the Philippines, like the Philippines is like a a good barometer of, of where the world is going, actually. And thinking about particularly these representations of Marcus's as these sort of whimsical, kind of ridiculous figures, I think suddenly, you know, particularly in 2016, when Duterte came to power, also when Trump came to power, when Brexit happened, it's when you realize that these kind of these ridiculous images are still incredibly lethal. And I think as I've made this work over the last few years, it's really been, it's been trying to keep at pace with how things, you know, are turning upside down. And in many ways, you know, my, my world has turned upside down because I, I don't actually recognize the country that I grew up in. I've lost family along the way, coming from a political family in the Philippines that is on the progressive side of things. It's been heartache after heartache. And yeah, so these representations have changed. So much so, in fact, that, you know, when when these paintings were on display as part of an exhibition in uh, 2016, 
I actually asked them to be painted black because, you know, the ridiculous imagery just no longer seems appropriate. And there's a kind of literal darkness that has set in that, yeah. you know, we're all trying to really try and understand, but, you know, really failing to understand and grasp. I mean, that, that was as a result, if I'm not wrong, of the fact that Ferdinand Marcos, the, the original Ferdinand Marcos, had been granted a hero's burial, effectively, in, in Manila. And that prompted that blackening of the works. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was a, a kind of an immediate gesture that I felt needed to happen because I think it was the day before that uh, Duterte and the Supreme Court of the Philippines actually decreed that, you know, the thief is now a hero. And it's important to note as well that Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s vice president is Duterte's daughter. So there's been this kind of coalition of the darkest forces you can imagine now, you know, in full control of Philippine society, essentially. And the rehabilitation of the dictator would not be possible without, you know, Duterte's like orchestration of, you know, turning historical events around and weaponizing um, social media. It's really surprising because, I mean, in some ways it wasn't a shock that Bongbong Marcos won. But it was the extent of his victory. You know, it was the largest majority in a Philippine election in decades. And so for, I don't know, however many million people that literally live in a different universe as I do, even if we occupy the same, you know, real estate. And that's completely mind-blowing. And that's what social media has done, that you can actually convince people that black is white. You know? yeah. There are lots of parallels with events in the United States and the UK in terms of Brexit and Trump, for instance, in terms of the way that the Marcoses have, have kind of weaponized social media, as you say, and, and there's a sort of fake news operation, a troll farm operation, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of Cambridge Analytica's clients was actually the Marcoses, or they were invited to pitch for Bongbong Marcoses vice presidential campaign in 2016. So it's not just parallels, it's actually a network of disinformation that's global. I mean, I think about the Republicans now holding like a rally in Budapest. I mean, like there is actually this, this consolidation of forces. And I think what the appropriate response to that is I, I'm not entirely sure because if if they can consolidate that well, then surely we can too. Now you just come back from Manila because of all the times to be putting on an exhibition, this seems so extraordinary. Yeah. But you have been installing an exhibition of your work over there. It must have been utterly surreal to be doing that amidst all of this. It it was it was. I mean, I'd always intended for this exhibition, which is the you know the ten year survey of this Marcos project. I'd always planned for it to open in the lead up to the presidential elections. But, you know, we started planning the show four years ago. And as we were installing it, I had no idea that it was going to be this specific until, you know, until a year ago and maybe less, like six months ago. In some ways, it's it's what you hope art could be, which is to transcend art and become like, you know, a site for memory. Um, after the elections it became a site for grief there was a day where about a thousand people came to see the exhibition just for a place to really process what happened and you know so I'm incredibly proud of of the show having taken place there and but it is like it's it's heartbreaking to witness the narrative that you're talking about in the show being completely appended outside you know the walls of the museum. Does it make you think about how you might take the work from here? I mean, can you even conceive of what the next step is? Ah, I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I always thought that this show would be 
the end of it. You know, it's a culmination in many ways. Um, I envision it always to to culminate in this particular museum, which is in the grounds of, of the university where my parents were held under campus arrest. But I think over the past weeks where the show has been open and people have been coming to see it, it's become this incredible, I guess, site to remember things and to realize, like, there's so much more at stake. I, I don't know how I'll carry on with it, but it's it's clearly not over because the history that it's talking about is still unraveling. And as much as I'd like to kind of, you know, look at it and go, done. I know it's not finished, but I don't know how I'll continue it at the moment. Well, Pio, thank you so much for coming in to tell us about it today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A Bad Fear of Freedom Makes Us See Ghosts is at the Ateneo Art Gallery, part of the Ateneo de Manila University, until the 30th of July. Pio's website is pioabad.com. You can read reports on the Philippines elections on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. On the 28th of May, the Modern Art Oxford Gallery in the UK opens Ruther Sauer, Citizen of the Universe, the first solo presentation of this increasingly influential artist, educator and activist in a European institution. Asawa was a first-generation Japanese-American, born in California in 1926 and had an extraordinary life growing up on a farm, being interned in a camp during the Second World War, attending Black Mountain College where she met the Bauhaus veterans Annie and Joseph Albers and the visionary architect and theorist Buckminster Fuller, among many others, before later becoming a leading figure in the world of art and art education in San Francisco. The Oxford exhibition features works from across her career, including drawings, paintings, prints, and her best-known works, hanging looped wire sculptures. And it's one of these wire works that Emma Ridgway, the co-curator of the exhibition, has chosen to talk about. Untitled S266, hanging seven-lobed, multi-layered, interlocking, continuous form within a form, from 1961. Emma, the work that we're going to discuss was made in 1961. Where was Ruth Asawa at that time and what was her reputation? At that point, Ruth Asawa was living in San Francisco. She'd had quite a bit of success in New York with her works, which she was making at home. She had also had six children and was making these extraordinary works, and this being one of the most complex So this particular work is unusual for a few reasons. It's particularly complex and ambitious in its scale. It's nearly three metres in size, and it's made of brass and copper wire. So originally it would have had those glistens of those two different metals as well. The form of the sculpture is her looped wire form, and it's only about in width, about half a metre in diameter, but the forms are biomorphic, so they look extremely natural, and they hang from the ceiling. They come out in different undulations and shapes and then weave back into themselves, so you see a form within a form of interlocking shapes that look like they're born from nature itself, which is one of the most extraordinary qualities of her work. 
Indeed it is. And, and obviously the title, I think, is wonderful in the sense that it sort of brings together lots of different elements from her history. There is the word lobe in it, and therefore that associates with the body very clearly. And yet, at the same time, there's almost this sort of systemic quality to the title. It has numbers, it has it has a description in a very sort of prosaic way of what we're looking at. So it's sort of really interesting journey through her influences and her kind of approach in that sense. Absolutely. And the reason I selected this work to talk about is because it speaks to a relationship that was really important in her life. So Ruth made this work as a gift to R. Buckminster Fuller, the architect and inventor who had invented the geodesic dome. And his first attempt at that was one summer in Black Mountain College in 1948, which is when they first met each other. This actual work she made for him as a gift. And there's a lovely telegram from him, which explains that the work was a delight to receive and that they hung it in Carbondale, which was actually the geodesic dome that Fuller lived in with his wife. So the work actually lived within a geodesic dome and it's very informed by those ideas. Just as you say, the description of the work is quite factual and that speaks to the interdisciplinary influences on Ruth Sauer's formation of these extraordinary works. So the works are very informed, not least by some of Fuller's ideas. He was very much somebody who was part of the big shift towards biological systems thinking that actually started in the late 1800s in particular. And it was informed very strongly as well by mathematical ideas, particularly around geometry and understanding that we are part of nature, and nature is very much made of forces that can be described by geometry. It was an idea that we and nature is part of an interconnected system of things. And Fuller's ideas, he was super charismatic, were that also we are very much part of not only the earth and the systems of earth, but within that, we're actually part of the universe. He had conceptions he developed later on, which speak more to that and more precisely to that. But these ideas about philosophical ideas combined with mathematical ideas, combined with scientific ideas, and also drawing cultural ideas very strongly influenced by Eastern philosophies as well. Yeah, And it, it was the Black Mountain College moment that really forged these different moments for Ruth that are manifest in these works. Indeed. I wanted to talk about another Black Mountain College influence because it's really interesting, the relationship with the Albers, because is it right that when Ruth applied to Black Mountain College, she was thinking of working with Annie Albers, but actually it was Joseph that had the greater influence on her simply because she took that famous summer course? Yeah, she was at Milwaukee Teachers College training to be a teacher and could not do her final teaching placement module because they were concerned that the level of racism was so high that it would be risky to put a young Japanese woman into a classroom. So they didn't graduate her, and she was frustrated, but she had some wonderful friends, uh, Ray Johnson and Elaine Schmidt, who had heard of Black Mountain College and encouraged her to apply. So she wrote to Annie Albers to say, could I come study with you? I want to come for the summer course. And Annie Albers replied, explaining that actually... That isn't enough time to learn weaving, so she should instead apply and do Joseph Albers' 
foundation core course uh, that he does in art and design, which all the students at the college were required to do. And Black Mountain College was a liberal college, so it was teaching humanities, mathematics, philosophy was taught there, maths. What was unusual about it was it had arts at the centre, and very particularly Joseph Alba's foundational courses in perception, in colour, in design that he had taught at the Bauhaus. And in fact, it was that teaching and those methods that meant he was invited to be at the centre of Black Mountain College. And Ruth studied with him for about six months, actually, doing other courses as well, and then returned to help her family kind of put their lives back together because, being of Japanese ancestry, they had been forced into concentration camps in the US, which were later referred to as internment camps, because they were of Japanese ancestry and Japan and America and many, many nations were all at war. So for Asawa, her plan was to go and do art teaching and work on the farm. And Joseph Albers was so struck by how gifted she was and how intuitively she understood some of the complex ideas he was bringing into his work, as were some of the other tutors, ideas that drew on Buddhism and Taoism and ways of being in the world that were very different than many Western young people are used to. And he was very concerned when she left the college, to the point that the founder of the college wrote to Ruth Asawa's parents explaining really she needed to come back to the college. And in fact, if she did, she would have Joseph Albers as her tutor and they also would have a scholarship for her. So she, right from the off, was seen as a very gifted, engaged and emotionally mature young person. That's really fascinating. And of course, it's often said that the trip to Mexico or two trips to Mexico that she took were profoundly influential on her use of wire. But I'm intrigued also by the fact that wire featured in her very young childhood on a farm, right? So what do you attribute as the major influence behind her use of wire? There's many different stories that feed into that, just as you say. And some is that when she was on a trip in 1947, that during that time, which was a Quaker teaching kind of education trip where she was doing workshops for children in Mexico and also the Albers were down there because they spent a lot of time there with their friends such as Diego Riviera who she got to watch making a mural and so that certainly informed some of her looping techniques I would say but to my mind from things I've seen and reading her letters and looking a bit further into it I'd say there's a few factors such as one of Albers's course methods that he had was how to make the most with least and how to really understand the integrity of a material. And one of the exercises he did at the Bauhaus House and also at Black Mountain College was using wire to create structures. And that was so people could start to understand negative space, start to understand how to use two-dimensional material into three dimensions. So I think some of those methods would have informed. He also talked a lot about uh, translucency as a very modern way of thinking about art and ideas and being in the world, which I think Ruth's interest in the shadows and seeing through the works partly is informed by that. And right towards the end of her time in college as well, in the summer of 1948, which was a really big shift for Sauer, really fascinating summer course, 
It was organised usually by the students, and Albers supported them a lot in inviting people to do a summer programme. And at that period, they invited Buckminster Fuller, his first teaching engagement, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, uh, Merce Cunningham and John Cage, and a few others. And the creative practices and ideas that came up in that particular summer season, I think, really informed Ruth working with wire more and more and thinking about form and shape in a way that was very distinctive to her. One of the things that's intriguing about this exhibition, of course, is that you planned it for 2020. It's been delayed by two years. But in that time, lots of artists have been making work on their kitchen tables while their kids are running about, you know. And it occurred to me that, you know, reading about Ruth, that's how she made so many of these works, you know. And it seems oddly fitting that you're showing this extraordinary production made in quite difficult circumstances in terms of concentration, in terms of space, in terms of, you know, just time. So tell us about that a bit. She's just a wonderful, amazing person. Through her life, teaching and learning are absolutely key. And that's why this work's so interesting. It's about a strong, affectionate relationship between a a mentor and a student. And actually, of course, the relationship of learning goes both ways. And Ruth had decided at a time in the college that she wanted a life. She wanted, she committed to being a professional artist. She learned from her tutors there that to do that, you needed to integrate art making into your life, whatever that was. She also wanted to have six children when she did decide to get married, having been advised not to have children if she wanted an art career. And she was also, it was recommended strongly that she dropped all her figurative flower drawings she loved doing, but she was extremely attached to those for good reason too. So she decided to try and do it all. And with a level of trepidation, because you don't know how things are going to work out. And I think one of the things that's so wonderful about her making method is it's one that she can return to. So she can do sections of, then return to it, do sections of and return to it. Her daughters were telling um, myself and my co-curator, Rebecca, when we were with them a few years ago now in San Francisco, that she would get up at sort of three or four in the morning to do her more drawing-in-peace kind of drawings and some of her study colour work she enjoyed doing. So they'd come down in the morning to find her sometimes asleep on the floor um, and sort of wake her up and um, to get on because she had a super busy life, very active in the community, became incredibly active in the 60s with civic engagement. And the whole time, what I found so wonderful was as well as continually campaigning for the importance of professional artists and interdisciplinary teaching. Mathematics is important to her, the practical approach, and sciences and biology. These things were all very important to her, but always with this idea of integrating these things together because they give you a full awakening to life, which is very much what Black Mountain College was about. She wanted to sustain that important idea. And I really do think that from the closeness with which I've looked at some aspects of her life and the letters I think her finding such a distinctive unique way of making art that is so in itself meditative to make and had such wonderful success through the 50s as well sustained her sense that she had individual creative practice as a woman which she learned from Annie Albers and others was an extremely important part of being a modern woman. And I feel that gave her the motivation and space to be doing civic projects that were collaborative with other people, to be putting ideas into education, because she's really established what mattered to her in her life. And she sustained this 
really distinctive practice throughout. And another factor, of course, in the delay, as it were, is that you're opening this when arguably in terms of Europe, you know, this is the first institutional show in Europe, but she's also right now on display at the Venice Biennale and in this wonderful space, which is all about the vessel, which is a kind of one of the historical capsules in the Venice Biennale show. It seems like it couldn't be in more apt time in a way to explore, Ruth, even though it must have been heartbreaking to delay it for so long. Oh, well, thanks for your understanding of it. It was hugely disappointing having started it in 2017 initially and... So it has been a long time coming. But as you say, actually, these things work out the way they work out. And the timing actually ends up being rather poetically wonderful. I mean, the showing of the works in the Arsenale exhibition of Milk of Dreams is exquisite. And the context within which the works are shown, such as with biological and scientific specimens and beautiful drawings in there by artists looking very much at uh, the biology of things and the use of milk and dreams as well of Ursula Le Guin's notion of the carrier bag theory, the idea that we could have a whole different conception of what makes people people and it could be one of vessels that carry things. I found it really wonderful and the context has great integrity with really where Ruth is coming from and In terms of the show, the postponements have been, you know, logistically complex as well as, of course, pretty painful too. It takes a lot to get these things going. But that importance of showing Ruth's story is not just an artist who makes works, but as a whole person, because whole person education, thinking of the whole person and the story of her life is what really was so important to share because we are all whole people. When things get too fragmented down, we lose aspects of ourselves and... It's more inspiring often to hear a fuller story of who people are and how people are. And, you know, her children, who obviously we've got to know fairly well over this time as well, have have uh, written to Rebecca and I and have been in touch so kindly to say that our persistence and dedication is very much what Ruth would do. You just keep going, going, going. So... Well, that's a great story. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Ruth Sauer, citizen of the universe, is at Modern Art Oxford from tomorrow until the 21st of August. It then travels to the Stavanger Art Museum, Norway, from the 1st of October until the 22nd of January, 2023. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel, and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Celia, Pio, and Emma, and to John Murphy at the BBC. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.